On the 26th of September, I'm launching a new podcast called The Family Tree. One of the things it's about is representation. People in the industry are like, well, we don't know where to find these writers. And I just thought, you know what, I've had enough of people being lazy and claiming they don't know how to use the internet. I will just put together a book that shows you 20 amazing writers and make it easy for you and make sure that they all release books as well. You know, if we know these numbers and we know that they should be represented, you just do it. Uh, there's no need for initiatives. There's no need for more panels. You just make sure that it's done. And, and I find that quite annoying that it hasn't been, you know, in our year of our law, 2016, we're still scrambling for representation where we should be at equity. We get asked loads about the leg, but I'm much more asked about class. Class is my thing and that's held me back loads more, you know. So, yeah, I'm much more asked about that. But I think that people are like a bit more squeamish about talking about class than they are about amputees. I don't have a preferred pronoun. I have a correct pronoun, and that correct pronoun is they. Sometimes I am more aware of gender, and more aware of my politics, and more aware of my identity through my art. So I'll write a poem and go, oh, that's what I think. Oh, that's how I feel. That's interesting. Yeah. Look, this is how I was feeling all this time. Who knew? For more information about the show, go to thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk. I um, used to live in the States, in Georgia, next to the freight train tracks. Wow. And a sound just like that, but even louder, used to come through every two hours during the night whenever the freight train came through. And um, it used to wake my dad up all through the night, but I slept through it, taught me to sleep through just about anything. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Carla. Hello, Carla. Hi. <laughs> this is so exciting because I don't. I'm not usually on the receiving end of an interview. I'm usually the one doing the interviews. I've only ever done this once before for another podcast made by the amazing Deborah Pearson, oh. um, who is a brilliant playwright, and she does a podcast called The Whole Darn Thing where you tell the story of a book or you've read or film you've seen or something like that and you just kind of recount it to Deborah and she asks you questions along the way that kind of link it back into your personal life. Wow. Yeah. That sounds cool. Yeah, it was I'll check cool. that out. <laughs> yeah, so we're recording in your in your flat and we've got and it's quite a hot day so the doors the, the windows open Slightly so there might be down. building works and stuff vaguely in the background but actually quite a, a much more pleasant audio experience than than often can be the case on this on this show. I want the the noise in the background but I also hate the noise in the background. Yeah. Kind of like I don't know, that seems very much like lots of things in life, you know. <laughs> yeah, like it's kind of like the smooth the, the smooth without the rock. Right. It's like you're looking for a job, then you find a job, right? Yeah. Like the Smiths. The first question. It's a great lyric, by the way. It is. It is indeed. <laughs> great um, band. Coming over here, I was listening to your your podcast, the Last ah, Emergency right. Podcast, just to kind of refresh my mind about how it works because <laughs> I sadly don't have as much time to listen mm. these days because I'm so busy making stuff, which I think is a 
I don't know. I think it's a bad, bad compromise. Yeah, I think it's tricky, isn't it? You can only make good stuff if you listen to good stuff. So it's a, mm. it's a, it's it is frustrating. But anyway, I was listening to to that, and I was also kind of looking at your your Twitter account and, and, <laughs> and your LinkedIn and all sorts of things that come up when you Google you. Dangerous. And I think and I think it's interesting. Like, I think there's there's quite a lot more crossover between our interests than I even thought that there might, would be when I was yeah. coming. So I'm quite interested to know how that'll go. Mm. So yeah, the first question I ask everybody is, how do you know me? How do I know you? I think I met you for the very first time at an arts emergency event. I think it was a comedy night or something like that that we did. Not long after I'd started at Arts Emergency, I think I was just about to launch the podcast, yeah, the first were, episode. Yeah. So we're on episode 17 now, so we're going past back about 17 months. <laughs> right. Yeah, I think to January 2015. Maybe. Yeah, I think that's yeah. right. Steve Cross had put on that night to raise funds, I think, for, right. for Arts Emergency, and he had me on me on the bill. Yeah, I think I was talking about tragedy. I was probably talking about tragedy that I night. I think you were. Yeah, yeah, I remember now. And I was ex- really excited to hear what you were going to do with the podcast. Yeah, I was kind of well, not thrown under the bus or thrown to the walls, although those are the phrases that instantly spring to mind. <laughs> but I was suddenly ordered up onto the stage and told to kind of announce the podcast and and what my plans for it were and give it a little plug and you know I think even at that stage I wasn't 100% sure what sort of direction it was going to go in I knew that I wanted to do something that was arts magazine-y because I used to be a producer on Radio 4's Front Row which I loved it was you know one of the best jobs I've ever had and I was only there for about five months because it was part of the production trainee scheme it was such an amazing experience and I really really love the show and I love the format but I wanted to make something like that that was more accessible to young people so hopefully that's what I'm doing to some extent I think that is what you're doing listening to it again on the way here confirmed my original thoughts when I first heard the first few episodes that that's exactly what you're doing what I like about what you're doing is you're aiming it at the kind of age group of the the people who use arts emergency who who arts emergency is for and there's not much out there for those for those those aged kids even though you know, we're supposed to be living in this world where, you know, Hollywood's catering towards, you know, mm. young people rather than kind of, you know, but that's yeah. not... That's not in terms of speech yeah, radio absolutely. Or, or, you know, speech podcasts. I think it's always a little bit kind of aimed, maybe people in their late 20s, early right. 30s. That's kind of the youngest age the podcasts, most of the podcasts I hear are aimed at. Right. I think everything's been thrown by the fact that, you know, nowadays people like cool music mm. all the way to the, when they die. Like they stay yeah. with the new trends. And so yeah. you can get away with thinking that you're mm. doing stuff for younger people, but you're still all your presenters are the same age and they're all yeah. into the same thing. And they don't actually know what young people are into. They just kind I of do worry do. that we dumb down our audiences as well, because I feel like young people, yeah, they do love music. They do love music and they love fashion and they love films and they love all of those things. But I think we often kind of present them with a really surface conversation, really, on those different subjects. And so what I aim to do a lot of the time is just kind of go a little bit deeper because I think that those younger people are intelligent enough to be able to handle going a bit deeper with those things. So initially, when I first launched the podcast, I was doing, I think, just sort of two kind of 10-minute interviews And I've since decided to kind of do one kind of longer lead interview, which is now more between 20 and 25 minutes. And then we've got the student soundtrack. So a student kind of picking their tracks, kind of 
help get them through the day or tracks that mean something to them. We have a poet in residence every month. We have a final thought feature, which is just someone kind of getting on their soapbox for a few minutes. And then we have a community organisation that puts together a 10-minute package themselves and kind of sends that over to me. And I polish it up a bit, but the idea is that it gives them the agency to create something that they want to create. And the brief is really broad. They can do whatever they want within that 10 minutes and talk about whatever issues they want to or even just talk about what they do. And I think a big aim of the podcast is to make people who are listening and people who are part of it really feel like they've got a sense of agency and that their creative thoughts, opinions, ideas actually matter and can come to fruition. But that that lead interview, that kind of long interview, you know, there are much kind of longer form interview podcasts, you know, (laughs) some that go on for an hour and a half, two or three hours even. It's like this one, but... um, Well, I I don't think I've ever been to three hours and I'm not that keen on that that (laughs) approach. I like, I like, I like long form, but Mm. I don't like over long form. Like, uh, it's like how, how, I can't remember what it's called, it's, there's, Pete Holmes does one in an American podcaster that's like three hours and it's like, what's the... I mean, yeah, he gets famous people on and mm. sure, you get interesting moments, I guess, when you get into like hour two and a half. You yeah. know, someone's left their guard down and says something that they yeah. never would have said, but edit that down if you're going to do tough. that approach, I think. I don't, I don't know whether there's anyone... I like enough to listen to <laughs> have a conversation with someone else for three hours. Yeah. You know, if I was having that conversation with them, I'd, get, I'd be able to get all the questions in there that I want to get in there. But I don't know. It just puts me in mind of um, really randomly seeing The Cure at Bestival a few years ago and um, wanting them to play Pictures of You. And I think it was about a three hour long set. And they didn't play pictures of you. And at the end of it, I thought, really, I feel really dissatisfied. And I imagine listening to somebody else have a conversation with somebody else for three hours and thinking all the way through, well, I really hope he asks him this. And then walking away from the interview, having not heard an answer to the question that you so wanted, is a bit like that dissatisfaction of not hearing pictures of you perform live at festival. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing. I think, you know, yeah, I mean... Three hours or, you know, is a long amount of time to commit to. Mm. And I think, you know, with this show, I'll let them go, you know, an hour and a half happens quite quite semi-regularly. Yeah. It's very hard to fit a conversation into a set time mm. but because conversations have a natural ebb and flow about them. I think it's hard to get much depth before kind of, you know, the 15, 16 <laughs> minute mark. Yeah. Um, but I also think, you know, I mean, I usually record nearly 45 minutes with people and then kind of edit it down from right. there. But... I also think that I think that there are other ways to create that sense of intimacy without just kind of slowly wearing someone down over the course of three hours. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, even just thinking about where you sit in a room with somebody. Deborah Pearson, who I mentioned earlier, who I did a, a, a podcast with, she told me about a podcast that they do in America where they get in a closet together and do the entire interview in a really confined space. And it's so weird, but that close proximity with someone instantly makes you want to tell them things. It's exactly the reason why you can't have certain people sleeping with certain people in the workplace or, you know, in government or whatever, because the moment you sleep with someone, you want to tell them things because you have that level of intimacy. Right. And, you know, and that lets out all manner of secrets... 
And obviously it's not just that, you know, there's also the exploitation element of it and kind of blackmail and all those things that power can dynamics, put, yeah, power dynamics, yeah. all those other things. But I think one of the biggest things is, you know, when you've shared a physical intimacy with someone, you start to share a level of emotional intimacy with them as well. And then you think you can trust them and you can tell them things and actually... Right. Can't. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> and that's a kind of complicated responsibility, I think, that people who are interviewing people like yourself and me mm. in this moment uh, have on our shoulders because, you know, it absolutely, like one of the reasons before we turned on the mic, you mm. know, I, I, I ask everybody what they don't want to talk about is to partly to remind them yeah. that, that just because we're going to have an intimate conversation in, a, in the, you know, this is in your flat, it's yeah. a very relaxed space for you. And of course that works to, to get you to say more things, you mm. know, kind of, you know, and so it has that, but I also have to be aware that that's a responsibility and yeah. particularly because I interview people who, who don't even have a profile. So yeah. I think like, you know, everyday people in their everyday lives aren't thinking how no. how are the how is the internet going to think of me how is how is my parents going to think of me all that stuff yeah and it comes down to duty of care really right. doesn't it you know there's been times when i've interviewed people or times when i've even produced interviews where i've thought do i feel good about the idea of putting this out there into the world knowing that that could have ramifications for that person is that really fair when they've mm. given me their time you never want to be exploitative I don't. Some people no. do. There are many, many, many... And I think this is why I don't consider myself a journalist and probably never would. But there are people out there who are journalists. I'm not saying... I'm not tarring and feathering every journalist not with the same journalists. brush. Not all yep. journalists. <laughs> but there are some journalists out there whose primary concern is getting the story and would probably look at certain stories that I have had, you know, at my disposal and not used and thought... An idiot. Why would you not put that story out there? It's your responsibility almost to put that story out there. But I have a funny thing about privacy in people's lives and how much you expose people, that duty of care, all of that. I, I, I don't know, it just it puts me in mind of putting your hand in someone's pants without asking them. Do you know what I mean? Indeed. And there's a, a horrible feeling that comes with that. And I think some people can live with that horrible feeling and some people can't. And I'm one of the people that <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think it, you know, it's. I think in terms of interviews, the way I try to do it is, it is about consent. Like, I will mm. talk about what my guests want to talk about. So, if they really want to get into yeah. like, the, their really personal details and like share and, and and share that with the public, that's fine. Yeah, uh, and I can go to those places. I don't have any privacy settings on my my yeah. mouth, um, but I have privacy settings for other people. Like, if somebody yeah. else wants that personal space I see no reason why they shouldn't have it I mean I think it depends as well on like what your goal is with with an interview you know it's like oh is your goal to get a story to get a good story to get a story that's gonna hit headlines or whatever or is it about finding out that person's journey or is it about inspiring the listener it's a good idea to have a clue about what you're hoping to right get out of the situation and I don't know if I would ever be the sort of person that would want to be interviewed by someone who's hoping to get a story that's going to, you right. know, be a bit sensationalist and, and hit the headlines. And I think that there's a level of responsibility that famous people, people with profile, etc., have out there to know exactly who's interviewing them and what they usually aim to get from certain interviews. And obviously you can only control that so much because, you know... You, you never know 
whether someone's going to take advantage. But I think, you know, having your guard up at whatever level you are is a good place, you know, a good, a good way to be. Yeah, I mean, I think we're in this really interesting space culturally at the moment whereby everybody, to a certain extent, is kind of grappling with the the questions of, like, being open and sharing Mm. our experiences, which we can do instantaneously with a lot of people. uh, The click of a... a, the click, Well, not even a click, just a a thumb now. And you never know how your intentions... You know, like... I'm quite... I'm, I'm a relatively open person, or... I definitely think I come across that way right. at the very least. Right. But whatever your intentions may be, sometimes they can be interpreted completely different right. to how they were intended. Like I posted a tweet only the other night that was inspired by a couple of incidences that had happened during that day and ended up getting a text from someone the following day who instantly thought that that tweet was all about them and got upset about it, and got in touch with me, angry, and and I was like, whoa, right, calm down. Right. So yeah, I think sometimes you have, you, well, I don't even know how much of, of your responsibility it is to police other people's thoughts and, and the way that they might interpret things, because you can't protect every single person in the world from how they may interpret something that you've done. But, but yeah, I mean, maybe I could have been a bit more careful, I think I think there's always I'm very much into the idea of being able to look back at things that you've done and you've said and really pick them apart and think what could I have done differently mm-hmm. because I think yeah maybe a little bit of responsibility does lie with the person who decided to look at my Twitter and decided to t- take what they thought from from that particular tweet yeah. but then at the same time you know I, I think in any given situation, it takes two to tango on some level and you can kind of look at the situation and go, okay, well, what could, have I, what could I have done differently? What can I take from that going forward? You I, mean, know? I think that's a really, that's a refreshing attitude to have. And I guess it's one that I try to, I aspire to, but don't necessarily achieve all the time. But it's definitely something I see, generally speaking, is that when someone challenges someone, mm. so often people come back defensive rather than thinking, oh, hang on okay, so what what did I do? Let's yeah. have a think. Let's see. Oh, I see how that could have been taken that mm. way. Like, I think that's a really a good... I don't don't get me wrong. I was, I was very defensive. Um, it's, only, <laughs> it's only today that I'm, I'm right. now kind of like... Well, that okay, sounds like me. I'm defensive, but then yeah. the day after I realise... <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, I was, I was defensive. I'm no angel. I was, <laughs> I was defensive. But I think even while I was being defensive, I did kind of say, look, I understand why you think yeah, that it, right, it could have right. been that way. And actually, maybe it does apply to you, but, um, you know, in <laughs> retrospect. But nevertheless, I think... I mean, every day brings new perspective. And actually... I really, I was saying this, I was on a date a few days ago. A few days ago? I think it was nearly a week ago now. Sunday it was, yeah. So a week ago, today. And I had this conversation with someone and I was talking about how I actually quite like being challenged. Because we were talking about being on the same wavelength as a person that you're dating, maybe. And I was like, actually, I think the biggest thing that I've learned in the last year or so is that sometimes it pays to not quite be on the same wavelength as that person Mm. because that person will then challenge you Mm. and that person will say to you, yeah, but have you thought about it this way? Or maybe even argue with you about a way that you're doing something. 
And um, there's, a, there's a quote I read the other day that said something like, I've never learned anything from a man who agrees with me. And it's true, you know. And you may have an incredibly tumultuous relationship where you feel like you're arguing all the time. But actually, that might not be the worst thing in the world because a lot of growth comes from that if you're able to kind of look at that situation in retrospect and go, okay, what could I have done differently? Okay, maybe that person might have been right or maybe that person was wrong, but how could I have handled that differently right. within the space of the argument? And, you know, and even 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 little things... Wow, what is that sound? <laughs> Do you know what I think that is? It's I think that's a train. freight train. Yeah, I think it is. That's a freight train. I um, used to live in the States, in Georgia, next to the freight train tracks. Wow. And a sound just like that, but even louder, used to come through every two hours during the night whenever the freight train came through. And um, it used to wake my dad up all through the night, but I slept through it, taught me to sleep through just about anything. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's a recognisable sound. Um, no, but I was just saying, you know, I, I think... I think um, the ability to kind of look at how you think you could have done things differently is important and the ability to be around someone who challenges you is a, is a, is a good thing. And I actually like being challenged because I like being forced to, first of all, explain myself because sometimes, you know, you never, you've never even thought about why you feel a certain way about something until somebody challenges you on yeah. that subject. And I think that's good because that builds your ability to explain yourself. And, it, and you might explain yourself and get halfway through and go, actually... That's bullshit, isn't it? Why am I thinking about it in that way? Right. Someone said to me several months ago, I think it was back in April, they'd just been on a flight to Mexico, I think it was, and they'd watched the film 127 Hours on the flight. Have you ever seen that? Is it, is it, the, is it the zombie one? Or like, no, no, that's, um, that's 28, 28 Days, days Later. later yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I haven't seen <laughs> Easily <that>. confused. <laughs> 127 Hours is the true story of a guy who loves to go hiking in the Grand Canyon and played by James Franco. Uh, the James Franco arm one. Yes, right? the arm film, yeah. <laughs> and he falls down like a, a crevice or something in the canyon and gets his arm stuck and has to... And this isn't a huge spoiler because I think everybody knows this, yeah. but, but, but close your ears if you've never seen the film and would like to see the film. He decides to lop his arm off in order to save himself. And... I said to the guy who was telling me about having seen this film, I'd seen it before as well, um, that I didn't think I would ever be able to do that, that I'd rather just die. And then he said to me, yeah, but why? Like, what if, you know, what if you had a wife, a family and kids and whatever at home? You know, if I had a, a wife and kids at home, I'd definitely lock it off. You know, it all depends about, it all depends on what you have to go back for. Right, And I thought, do you know what? You're absolutely right. And I went from within the space of about five minutes thinking, oh, I'd never be able to do that, I'd never ever do that, to thinking, yeah, I absolutely would. If I had kids, I absolutely would. And it completely changed my perspective on so much, you know, that actually, yeah, it's completely worth putting yourself through that for the sake of your kids or, or your even, your, even yourself, you know. Maybe even yourself. Potentially. I don't know whether I can do it just for myself. myself. I know what you mean. <laughs> I, I totally know what you mean about that. So, yeah, the second question I ask everybody is, what do you do now? Which I guess we've kind of touched on a little bit. But, yeah, what, what, do, you, what do you say when someone asks you that? I get asked that question a lot. And every time I kind of go... Um, simply because, like, just because just I, I, I do a few things... At maybe averagely. 
I'm kind of a bit, bit of a jack of all trades, master of none, probably. So my primary job, I suppose, the job that I do the most, the job that pays most of my bills, is um, working for Radio One and One Extra. And I'm an assistant producer for them. And I mostly uh, work on the specialist shows, so kind of all the dance music shows on Radio One, you know, Animac and Dance Anthems, and I work on Hugh Stevens quite a lot over there as well, or... Well, not that much, I suppose. Every so often. That's a show that I would like to work on a bit more, actually. And then on One Extra, I do do a bit of daytime, but also the specialist shows, so Mr Jam, um, Target... And some of the daytime shows like Trevor Nelson, who I love to work with. Um, ADOT, I've worked with a lot. Yasmin Evans. So yeah, and I also used to work at um, Asian Networks. So I've, I've kind of done... We, they're all, all of those networks are kind of on the eighth floor of New Broadcasting House. And so I've kind of done the whole of the eighth floor, really. <laughs> um, but I've also worked at Radio 4, as I mentioned earlier, which I loved. Never thought that somebody who looked like me and spoke like me would ever get to work at Radio 4. So right. that kind of felt, yeah, that was pretty cool. And also I've worked at Six Music. So I've done just about all of the BBC radio stations except for Five Live and Three. I don't think I'll ever end up at Three. It's not, not quite my vibe. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I've always loved sports. So, you know, maybe Five Live one day. Yeah, so that's kind of my primary job and then up until a few months ago I was doing voiceovers continuity for channel four which I did for about 10 months which was fine but it was kind of a means to an end really for me it was all about sort of making enough money to be able to afford to spend more time writing which is the thing that I love to do the most so when I started getting paid for writing I kind of didn't really need that job anymore and so yeah so I got I got my first little writing commission back in April working on a project for Lime Pitches you make Hollyoaks and fresh meat and used to make Brookside and then got commissioned by ITV Studios a couple of months after that and that's a six-part drama that's my baby so yeah so I've been working on that specifically the pilot episode which hopefully I'm hoping that we'll, we'll get kind of signed off by ITV Studios within the next week or so, hopefully. Fingers crossed. <laughs> and then we'll be taken to commissioners. So, um, so yeah, so it's kind of a waiting game with that at the moment. We'll see what happens. That's what I really, really love to do. Not that I don't love to do radio, but I think it's nice to kind of have something outside of radio. And I think it's nice to have something outside of writing. And then obviously helping out with Arts Emergency and making a podcast. The majority of your radio jobs, as you described them then, are kind of also connected to music, right? Mm. Was music what drew you in first or was radio what drew you in first? That's a very complicated question, actually. Okay, so I grew up around music, Around a huge amount of music, actually. My dad is an ex-jazz musician, so he, like, played double bass, like, all through, like, his teenagers and 20s and stuff. And so he's mad into jazz, but also a variety of other types of music as well. Both my parents were really into the whole kind of early to mid-80s Manchester music scene, so kind of New Order and the Buzzcocks and... You know, my dad used to live with Mick Hucknall and they were friends with John Cooper Clark. Right. And so they were very much around all of that. And so I think that that was a lot of music that I was listening to growing up. And they 
also were kind of like hippies in the 70s so there's a bit of a hangover from that and my brother is also a jazz musician he plays the saxophone um, just graduated from Leeds College of Music so there's been loads of music around me always and we emigrated to the States when I was 12 took me a good few years to kind of like find my musical niche really I was just kind of surrounded by like all of this like quite like heavy like Atlanta hip-hop that was all about like going to strip clubs and rolling around in Cadillacs and I just didn't identify with any of that because that wasn't my experience of life and then the first kind of waves of grime and UK hip-hop kind of started to sort of filter through mostly through illegal downloads (laughs) once I discovered how to do all of that as a teenager and so I started listening to people like Dizzy Rascal and Streets and even though Dizzy was from Burr and Mike Skinner was from Brum like they were speaking my language they were speaking about things I could identify with you know they were talking about sitting in a greasy spoon with your mates and things like that but I thought yeah I can get into this and I loved it I loved it right from the start but it was really weird kind of living in Georgia around people my fellow teenagers were not listening to that kind of thing at all so I didn't really have anyone to like talk to about it and I guess that's when I started getting into things like MySpace and Free Open Diary because there were people there from other countries that were listening to it or even from well, yeah, I mean, mainly from, from the UK. And that kind of connected me to home. So I, I kind of found a sense of belonging, I think, within music and also within football at that time. And I guess as well, I started listening to a lot of the indie bands. I remember when the first Strokes album came out and that really changed things for me because that opened me up to like a whole world of, of indie that I, I started to really kind of throw myself into. So, yeah, that's kind of like my musical origins but I'd always listened to loads of radio when I was growing up in Manchester not so much when we moved to the States because there everything is kind of controlled by Clear Channel and where I lived in Georgia you you had the option of kind of the Atlanta hip-hop and a bit of R&B that like I just described and gospel or country and that was literally it right and so I listened to like NPR and stuff like that when I moved to the UK at 18 I started listening to the radio again and and remembered how much I loved listening to the radio. And then I started university at Goldsmiths, and because I liked a boy who was doing university radio, I thought, oh yeah, give that a go. And then just kind of found myself thrown in at the deep end, presenting news, because somebody was supposed to be presenting it with me and didn't show up, and, and then all of a sudden there I was. And I thought, yeah, this is scary, but I quite like it. And so within the space of a couple of years, I was then running Wired Radio, which was Goldsmith Student Radio, and, and I started doing hospital radio. And, and it was quite nice to kind of have the balance of student radio and hospital radio, because my student radio show was really, really self-indulgent. It was like, <laughs> I'm going to, even though there's maybe only two people listening, I'm going to play this track because I think it is the most amazing piece of music ever. Whereas hospital radio, we'd go around to all the wards and meet all the patients, and they'd have like suggestions of like tracks that they wanted. And it was all about lifting the spirits of the patients and making them happy and really thinking about your audience and and then kind of me and a, a lad called Phil um, we did this co-hosting routine where it was very much personality radio and every now and again you'd you'd really be reminded of exactly why you were doing it you know we had a phone call once from this kid and he actually he kept calling throughout the course of the show with different requests and eventually I said to him, oh, what are you in for? He was, um, how old was he? He was 
12, I think he was. So what are you in for thinking? Oh, I bet he's fallen off his bike and broken his arm. And he said, um, oh, I've got CF. And I thought, oh, God, that's awful. And I thought, he's he's basically middle-aged, given the life expectancy, you right, know. Right. And it just, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are thousands of people out there with CF who are, who are living for fulfilling lives and are very, very capable and all of that. But the fact that this 12-year-old who should be out riding his bike and doing things that 12-year-olds could do was stuck in hospital instead with nothing to entertain him but hospital radio just really kind of brought it home exactly why we were doing it, you know. And so there was no room for being self-indulgent. You know, you really had to think about things in a very different way and I think right. that was really good for me at that time. Because it does kind of bring you back to earth a bit, right. and sometimes you need that, you know. So. Right, it's like radio as a as a service mm, for other people, exactly. And radio as a as a means of self expression, mm. both of which are important, I think, mm. in different ways. But definitely, it sounds like a great kind of double bill for you to mm. kind of like go through. Yeah, yeah. So when I finished university, I thought, yeah, I definitely want to do radio. Radio is what I want to do, and I started looking for radio jobs. And there was nothing, absolutely nothing, unless I wanted to work in Strathclyde, a tiny local radio station. So I ended up falling into TV, initially working for Man United television, which I loved. You know, it was a dream come true, having been, you know, a huge Man United fan growing up. And then, you know, just kind of did one, like, telly internship after another, ended up at Sony Pictures for a while, working in entertainment TV and then went and joined the BBC to get out of entertainment TV because even though it was fun coming up with ideas for TV shows and coming up with games for game shows and and all of that, it just wasn't really fulfilling for me because it wasn't the sort of telly I was interested in watching. Right. And so I ended up getting a place, first of all, in the production talent pool and ended up working on a documentary about tsunamis for about four months and then managed to get a place on the production trainee scheme, which was great because it brought me back to radio because you did two placements in radio and two placements in telly. And my last placement was at Radio 1 and 1 Extra and I just sort of stuck around. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to get into anything, pretty much, these days. Um, maybe forever. I mean, I don't know. When I say these days, I always think, is it really these days or <laughs> has it always been difficult? But, I mean, certainly I think we're, we're currently in a, a climate where it's very difficult to get jobs in the ways that hasn't always mm. been in the past. Oh, yeah. My, like, when my parents talk about their experience of the workplace when they were younger, you know, they said there were loads of jobs and so workers felt like they had more rights. You know, you could literally walk out of a job right. and walk into another one the next right. day if you weren't happy. My mum actually fell into working in TV. She worked for Thames TV for a while. I think she was just a secretary or an office girl or something like that. And the way she describes having worked for Thames TV, you know, like there's this kind of utopian sort of office environment where every day, you know, I think multiple times a day, they had this little cart come through with all these free snacks and teas and everything. And it just sounds like a wonderful place to have worked. But there just isn't the money. Places like the BBC for that kind of thing. And I think even in the private sector there's probably less money than there was back then as well yeah no i agree telly is definitely not the same as it as it used to be which might be a good thing given all the revelations that have come out recently there are are many yeah i mean exactly there are lots of problems now but there are also things that are better now than we're we're in the past swings and roundabouts Mm. although the reason that arts emergency exists in the first place though is that the, the arts, it, you know, this is why I support arts emergency, but mm. it's hard for the arts to become a diverse uh, place because 
Well, as as of as, the way it's set up, you as know. <laughs> you know, with all the positive things that Mum says about Tenants TV back then, the way I imagine that office set up to be is very, very white, very male dominated. Women feeling like they have to wear high heels and dress right. in a certain way in order to be accepted in that office environment, and I think that's definitely something. I mean, there's still God, there's still a long way to go, but there's progress Absolutely. there. You know, my office is really diverse and a very good mix of, of men and women. But at the same time, I sometimes feel like you almost get caught up in the bubble that that is and you forget that the rest of the, the workplace in, you know, in other offices doesn't actually look like that. Right. You know, Arts Emergency is, is amazing in so many ways, but I think that that one of the things that drew me to it the most is just kind of the idea of pushing for fairness yeah you know and a level of equality that just isn't really seen in the wider sphere even simple things like oh you're more likely to be featured on the cover of radio times if you're a dalek than you are if you're a person of color you know and that is an actual fact there are more daleks on the cover of the radio times than people of color which is just you know that is a horrible, horrible uh, fact. I mean, the, 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 it's a it's a frustrating kind of landscape as well because even as there are certain, like you say, like certain offices, certain places where people of colour and people who don't fit kind of gender norms and mm. women, particularly obviously, are getting represented. Even then, like one of the things I think is is so important about arts emergency is that the people who get to be represented generally have some money. Uh, in their backgrounds, where whatever colour they are, yeah, whatever exactly. gender they are, yeah. and that's the real frustrating thing. Like, it is. And then I'm not saying that that's more frustrating than the lack of people of colour, because all of these things are incredibly frustrating, mm-hmm. but it's like, if you're a working class person of colour, yeah. then, then, you know... Oh, it's, it's levels of privilege at right. the end of the day. Like, right. you know, I am black, white, mixed race, I'm northern, I'm bisexual, I'm a woman, I come from a low-income background... So all of these things are potential obstacles that might hold me back in certain ways. However, I think that the biggest problem with privilege is that the majority of people who have it do not realise they've got it. So even with all of those things that I am, I have to recognise that I still have a huge amount of privilege that some other people do not have. I come from a two-parent family, which a lot of people don't have. And as black as I am... I am a lot whiter than a lot of, you know, my black friends. I also might speak with a Northern accent, but at least I speak with a British accent, which gives me an advantage over a lot of kind of immigrants that might still have like a a twang of an Indian accent or an African accent or whatever. I live in London, which is a huge advantage over a huge amount of people, whether it's because I've had to really, really graft to stay in London and I've managed to kind of be upwardly mobile enough to be here in the first place. That obviously needs to be taken into account on some level, but not everyone would have the attributes in the first place to even start to be upwardly mobile in that way. And that's given me an advantage, and maybe that's because I came from a very, you know, supportive two-parent family. So all of these things kind of come into play. Like, there is no advantage that I can look at that I have over other people that I deserve more than they do. Do you know what I mean? And yet I've got it because of an accident of birth, just like you're a white man who's got that over the accident of birth. And it's not a case of, like, spending every day thinking, oh, 
I need to feel guilty about that. But it's a, it's, it's a case of recognising what privilege you have and yeah. thinking, how can I pass that on to other people? Right. And I mean, that's what Arts Emergency is all about. Exactly. And that's one of the things I really like about Arts Emergency is it's about like saying, like, if you've got privilege, how do you share that privilege yeah. around? And that's something that I spend a lot of time trying to work out for myself. Mm. Although it's kind of, it's interesting as well. It's like, so I, I tick like most of the boxes of privilege, as is kind of clear, because I'm a white man mm. and I'm middle class as well. But at the same time, it's kind of like what you're saying about remembering that you've got areas where you're privileged in. Mm. I find that sometimes the, the way I can end up is I forget the areas where I don't have like privilege. Yeah. So like I, I have mental health issues, I have uh, a complicated family background, like yeah. which was not very pleasant. I, you know, I was bullied at school, whatever. Exactly, so saying whatever is a kind of sense of like that's like I, I really yeah I I don't think of the the areas where I'm and I don't make much money these days as well mm. and that's that's an, an area where you can just kind of go around the world thinking oh yeah I I tick all the boxes of privilege so I yeah. should spend all my time feeling guilty but at the same time it it means I I don't feel kind of almost empowered to sort of talk about what it's like to have no money because yeah. I, I don't want to look like a white guy yeah. moaning about stuff. Do you know what yeah. I mean? But I mean, I'm not suggesting... I, mean, I, I know exactly what yeah. you mean. And it, yeah, and it's tricky. Like, <laughs> I had, like, you know, I live in a really nice flat and I have some really great jobs and from the outside, I think people look at that and think, wow, she's got it made, lucky bitch. You do have an amazing flat. Thank I didn't think that when I came in, I was like, wow, this is an amazing flat. I mean, that is, is pure luck exactly, more than yeah. anything because... And I've lived in some real shitholes, you know, and I'm talking, like, covered in mould, like, maggots coming from the ceiling kind of shitholes. And this is, you know, with this place, I really, really fell on my feet. And I'm just lucky that to be living with kind of a a living landlady kind of situation where she deliberately cut the rent because she didn't want to have to live with a city knobhead and would rather live with, you know, someone who's a bit creative and has a bit of conversation that she might be interested in a very in. good example of, so, share, of sharing your privilege 100% right? yeah and I as mean, the I mean, housing crisis she, continues more and more people need to do that really I think that comes from the fact that she did, she wasn't born out of privilege right. you know she's, she was absolutely not privileged growing up and so I think she's not out of touch actually she's one of the most clued up people politically socially even just emotionally that I have ever met in my life and to be white and have been in a position where for years she's working around people who are very very privileged to still have that level of awareness is like a real testament to her I think but not everyone everyone has that (laughs) indeed they don't I mean I I worry that I don't have uh, enough awareness of my privilege but I think I'm not saying I I get uh, I I get to say I do Mm. but certainly when I look at other people they, yeah. there's so little awareness yeah. of anything and you know it's hard to say you know if I had had a different life mm. would I be aware of my privilege as much like if I yeah. hadn't had those things that I was talking about which were privilege yeah like would I then like so sometimes you can I only kind of... really speak from your personal viewpoint exactly. and okay. and maybe sometimes it's easier to observe privilege from the outside looking in sometimes I mean I was going to say before you know people look at the fact that I've got a really nice flat and I've got some cool jobs and I've got lovely friends around me and all of that and it's like yeah I'm so appreciative of all of those things I really am but I have to battle every month to make the rent you know I'm penniless nearly all of the time I haven't had a holiday since 2014 literally never not any kind of holiday at all. Right. I went to Edinburgh for the Fringe, which was a huge deal for me. So I was there for about a week, a couple of weeks ago. 
but that's the nearest thing I've had to any kind of holiday. Right. The last time I saw my brother, he actually said to me, I think you've faded since we were kids. I was like, what do you mean? He was like, you know, you've faded and your skin. And I thought, he's right, I think I have. I think London, being in London all the time, round right. the clock, year after year... I actually think it's made me go a bit grey. Well, working in, in audio means you'll be sitting inside a lot, editing yeah. as well. Which... Oh, definitely. Yeah, I think my skin's actually gone a bit grey. I think I'm <laughs> slowly turning into Gollum. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But one day, you know, you just got to hope that if you keep grafting, one day you'll you'll get a couple of days in the south of France or something out of it. Right. I mean, in that respect as well, the art, working in the arts or like being in the arts is quite a good leveller in some ways. Mm. Like everybody, whatever their kind of original privileges that I know in the arts are, are grafting. And, yeah. As, 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 you know, and you know, there's different kinds. There's invisible privilege, so I don't make much money now, but eventually I'll inherit some. Mm. Um, not very much. It takes quite a few generations for for white people to lose all their money. Yeah. Um, but, but so eventually I'll get that money, yeah. and then I'll I'll lose it for this generation, and then you know, <laughs> I won't be having any more kids. So I guess that privilege will end with me. But but even so, like the arts, everyone's struggling. I don't know anyone who's not like struggling, like grafting, like. And all that stuff like plays into like everyone's anxious because they've got no pre- precariousness, isn't it? It's, we're, we're a precariat. That's what they, they say now. The word. If I if I could actually use one word for living in London, be it you know even even if you're not a creative person, right? Absolutely. Just living in London, anxiety is the word that I would use, and that is a constant lingering daily struggle for me I feel constantly constantly anxious yeah I don't think I've had a moment's peace in a ever maybe no I <laughs> but, mean uh, that, that resonates very much with with how I feel I think at the moment um and it's funny because you want to keep you want to keep your passion right you want to keep oh, yeah. excited by what you're doing and it's very hard to do that when you're just constantly scared I think it's a big part of the reason why I've spent a lot of time investigating religion and spirituality and doing yoga and meditation and things like that because one of my biggest aims in life is to just get a little bit of peace you know wherever that comes from whatever form it comes in just trying to yeah grab a chunk of peace you know I think everybody's very concerned with the pursuit of happiness and I get that, totally get that but I think that just peace would be enough Mm. for me, for now (laughs) That makes a lot of sense to me Mm. So yeah, so I think the the, the background sound is, has it's changed loud, slightly over it. Um, close the door. No, 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 it's fine. But I mean, <laughs> I don't know what's going on. I think there's there, some though. kind of carnival. Like the, the road was closed when I was walking here, and there were like floats with like oh, pu- wow. big puppets and stuff. So amazing. Uh, so yeah, I didn't even know that was going on. So one of the things about living in London, sometimes you can have something like that right on your doorstep and not even know it. Right. We are all so caught up in our little anxious lives. <laughs> That um, you know, sometimes we don't have time to just sort of look out the window and see what's going what's on. Actually happening. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. So music and audio and radio sort of happened that way. When when did writing happen? So when I, when we moved to America, we originally lived in a place called Harlem, which was this really really tiny tiny town in Georgia. Right. Really tiny. Like it had a church and one shop and dirt roads, and that was it. And we lived there for about a year and then moved to the nearest city, which is a place called Augusta, which is where they have the golf tournament, the Augusta Masters, and James Brown is from Augusta. 
and that's literally it. <laughs> that's our only claims to fame. So we moved to Augusta and there was a school called Davidson Fine Arts School and it was a really very, very, very competitive school in like the top 100 schools in America. It was state funded, but the way that it worked was the money that the state would usually give you sport all went to the arts. And so they had classes taught in all five areas of the arts. So dance classes, art classes, drama, music, and I guess creative writing. And so I, you had to audition to get in. If you got lower than a C in any subject, you got kicked out and you couldn't come back. So it was quite intense even back then. And I was really into drama, did quite a bit of acting, but also really, really into dance. And it got to the point in my final couple of years that I was there, I was wearing a leotard under my clothes to school every day because it was just easier because I was dancing for about four hours out of every day. And I was also playing football and coaching football outside of, of school. And started doing pre-point for ballet, which was really exciting because it's what I'd always wanted. And we went and got my point ballet shoes and started breaking them in and you know I'd been doing ballet since the age of about six so it was a really really exciting time for me but also a really grueling time for me and you know the combination of doing football outside of school and ballet inside of school along with a couple of other dance forms was pretty tough on I mean it's pretty tough on anyone's body I think especially yeah. when you're still growing I did a year of dance and that oh, was really? hard enough and it wasn't even ballet so yeah, <laughs> I know that for you. what I didn't know at that time what I didn't find out until I was about 20 21 was that I had a pre-existing condition called degenerative tendinosis and so uh, my knees went and I meant I couldn't dance anymore and couldn't really do too much on the football front anymore though I was still kind of still kind of doing a bit of coaching here and there I think but yeah they just went completely and um, couldn't really get about in the same way anymore and it was just yeah it was a really hard time because I kind of had to look at things and go it changed everything that right. I thought I was going to do right. with my life I thought that I was going to go to some sort of like theatre school or dance school after I graduated from high school and that was going to be an actor or a dancer or whatever and you know my knees were just ruined and I thought I didn't even know then that I had degenerative tendinosis I just knew there was a serious problem I'd at that point overstretched the tendons in both my hamstrings yeah which was really painful Mm. and really immobilising and it meant that I, in order to get credit for my dance classes, because I had, you know, huge amounts of dance classes in my schedule at that point, I had to, like, learn about the human body and take, like, do written work and take tests on, on that sort of thing instead of actually dancing and learning the Michael Jackson thriller routine, which is what would have been the thing that I got to do next in my tap and jazz class so I was really disappointed that I never got to do that and just had to watch everyone else learn how to do that but yeah so being immobile makes you think okay what can I do where what is my creative outlook going to be and so that's kind of when I started writing back then it was kind of sort of bits of prose and um really really bad poetry um <laughs> but I did love it my teacher thought that I had something but I never I don't know even even when it came to dancing because I was in a situation where I was in a school 
surrounded by exceptionally talented people, I never for one moment thought, oh, I'm talented. You know what I mean? I never, ever thought I was talented. Yeah. And even getting older and looking into potential careers and joining the BBC and all of that, one of my placements on the production trainee scheme was working on casualty. And at that point, I thought I really wanted to be a script editor and I wanted to support other people with talent. And even before, you know, just when I was starting uni, I thought, oh, I think I might like to work in PR and support other people with talent. Even the radio thing, in a big way, was about supporting other people with talent. And so I never really thought I could be that person with talent. When I was dancing, even when I was doing drama, when I'd audition for drama roles in school, I'd always go for the supporting roles. Never, ever would go for, you know, the main role, ever. And when I was dancing, I kind of saw myself as part of, you know, a larger picture, part of the machine, you know. And I was told by my high school dance teacher, I was told, oh, you'd never be prima, you'd never be prima ballerina anyway. She said, not because you're not capable of being that, not because you don't have the talent to be that, but because you're too tall. And... Yeah, so I developed a complex about my height at a very, very young age. I am tall. And she said, the boys, who will be shorter than you, do not want to have to dance with a tall girl. Yeah, but I mean, that in is, I mean, that's such a a sad kind of indictment of the future. Like, Mm. like for them to say, oh, you've got the talent to be about the to be the prima ballerina, but because uh, men will feel threatened by your size, you know, that's so sad like mm. you know for those for small men too because yeah, it means that small men can't get to do those parts because they won't look masculine enough short well, men get a terrible rap in uh, in today's society I think I, uh, I've nearly nearly every guy I've ever dated has been shorter than me it's never ever once bothered me ever but sometimes I do wonder if it bothers them sometimes I wonder whether they've thought Oh, I don't. I'm not sure if I want to hold her hand in public, or I'm not sure if I want to be seen with her in public because how does that look that I'm shorter than my woman? Do you know so, what I mean? I mean, what I want to say to you at this point is that's absurd. Like, I can't <laughs> imagine why anyone would feel that. But then I like, uh, but I also know that people feel absurd things all the time. So yeah, I mean, like, there, there's no reason why I can see that that someone wouldn't want to hold your hand in public and be seen with you. Yeah, but I mean, time, I'm not a very hand-holdy person anyway. But that's <laughs> not really the point. Right. I don't know. You sometimes look at certain relationships and you think, oh never quite understood why that ended maybe it was because of this or because of this or because of this or maybe it's something as simple as I was just a bit too tall and they were a bit embarrassed to be seen with me for that reason well, I hope that's not the case but if, <laughs> if anybody uh, ended a relationship with you because you were too tall then not they've got the a time, lot of in their lives I mean but it's a complex yeah. you know and complexes kind of come from uh, from something that's been said or Absolutely. done at a very young age but weirdly being told that I would never be prima ballerina anyway because I was too tall is something that's actually been a bit of a source of comfort. You know, once everything went wrong with my knees and everything, later on in life I started to think, well, I wouldn't have been prima ballerina anyway, so it's okay, right. actually. 
And I still have my point shoes. I've got them hung up in my room in a cupboard and every time I feel a bit sad that I can't dance, I open that cupboard and I look at those point shoes and I think of how much pain they caused me. (laughs) And I miss dancing a lot less. So you kind of... It's funny because in life you're always told to kind of look at positives, which I do try and do, but sometimes those negatives are the things that you can cling on to when it all goes wrong. Absolutely, absolutely, I agree with that. But then I would because I, you know, do stuff about negative stuff all the time. Mm. So now, you do you feel like you're... Like, so you were saying that you didn't feel like you were talented in that you, like, feel like you had to position yourself in supportive roles. Yeah. But now, obviously, you've got a a commission. Yeah, um, And you're... Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, how do you feel? do 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 you feel like you can say you're a writer now? Do you feel... I feel like I can legitimately say I'm a writer. (laughs) (laughs) It still feels weird. It still feels weird because it's still it's a very very new thing. And you know, I I've been writing obviously for years before I got any commissions. And I had friends that would like introduce me to people and go, "Oh, she's a writer," and I'd cringe because I'd think, "No, I'm not. Like, you're not a writer until you've been paid to write." You know. And so when I've got that very first paycheck for writing, I was like, ooh, this is legit now. It wasn't about the money. No, no, no. It was about feeling like I was legitimate. Yeah, yeah, I can understand And, that. like, I remember being in Liverpool and shouting out of a car window, I'm a writer. Because, <laughs> <laughs> like, that was, yeah, that was the first time I ever felt real. But it's still a bit weird. It's still, still, I don't know, it's still a bit weird because I don't have an agent. If there's any agents listening, please represent me. <laughs> I don't really understand contracts. They're really hard for me to read. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so I don't have an agent. I haven't had much made. Um, so it's still a bit... still feels a bit weird calling myself a writer. And I still... I don't know how much I believe in the concept of talent. I mean, I do when, it, yeah. when I look at other people... I do think, oh yeah, they're really talented. They're so, t- you know, he's got a voice like an angel, and you know, his, his spoken words amazing. Or she's a really amazing actress. She's so talented, but but I don't know if I believe in it within myself. Like I, because I actually look at what I have achieved, and I think, well, I haven't achieved that because I'm talented. I've achieved it because I've worked really, really, really hard, and that's made up for the fact that I haven't got much talent, and. Yeah, and I've been really determined and committed, and and maybe that's helped make. Up but maybe for that it. is talent. I mean, yeah. some of the some of the people that you look at and think, oh, they're so talented, have yeah. nearly def- oh, really grafted. Nearly, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, yes, there are some people who kind of just naturally it comes to them, mm. and that's great for yeah. those people. But even then, there's still a lot of hard work that has to go oh, around. Yeah. That. I mean, and maybe that's the thing I don't believe in myself. I don't believe I have any natural talent towards anything, um, which isn't the end of the world. Um, maybe I have to work a bit harder to to be able to do things. But sometimes that means that I have to be sure that I want it in order to pursue it and dedicate that time to it and maybe wanting it more than a a person who might be more naturally talented is a more productive thing but I I don't know like my brother who I mentioned earlier is a jazz musician and he can read music like better than he can read books I don't know if he's ever read a complete book in his life but he reads music and it's just unreal Mm. you know 
Whereas when I was trying to get my head around music in high school, I'd sit for ages and just stare at the paper and I'd have to like count to figure out exactly which line the note was sitting on. And, and it's funny because I was watching a thing about dyslexia several years ago that Cara Toynton did for the BBC and she was talking about how she sees words on paper when she's trying to read a book. And the way she described it to me was exactly how I feel when I look at sheet music. And I thought, is that a thing? Is music, being musically dyslexic a thing? It made me wonder. And I know it sounds really bizarre, but I like the level of frustration that I felt because it just would not compute. It just would not compute for me. And, you know, I, I managed to get to like grade five piano and I think grade two flute, but how the hell I got there, I really don't know because I was shocking. It was really shocking. <laughs> and yet my brother just picked it up and he's worked bloody hard at it, really, really hard at it. And he's had to make a lot of sacrifices for the sake of it. Right. But it was just something that came that little bit more naturally to him. And I, I'm fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by what people have natural attitudes for and, and don't, you know, from from when he was a toddler, he used to bang on, on tables and... Like in his high chair, he'd kick and drum on the tabletop, and so he had like that natural kind of rhythm from yeah. day, you know. But then, if you know what you want, if, if what you're doing is being a writer, yeah, then you know, I, I, I mean, I'm not going to challenge you. I don't really know you that well. I mean, mm. We've only been talking for for an hour, really. I mean, this is the longest conversation we've ever had. <laughs> but listening to you, I would suggest that maybe you could see you as having a, a, a natural talent as a writer because. When you first mentioned Georgia, when you first when we heard the uh, the freight train, it sounded like the first line of a of a novel. Like, it was like in Georgia, you know. It, I, I can't remember the exact quote, but I remember thinking, "Wow, that's a great line for a novel." I was going to say, but then you know the conversation we've done, and and, and 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 when you're talking about your brother, when you're saying, "Oh, I've got a fascination for why people do that," and you're doing that, that seems to me to be part of what being a writer is: is being someone who's fascinated, who observes, who's excited. Like that's a natural talent within you of, of that interest. I mean, I'm really interested arguably. in. Um, I'm really interested in people starters why people do the things that they do right one of my favorite series that i've ever seen on television is um jimmy mcgovern's the accused which i thought was so brilliant because it takes a person who is put in an impossible situation where they have to make a really difficult decision and it's all about kind of sympathy for the devil you know a, a terrible crime is committed and someone's been incarcerated for it an almost unforgivable crime and then it takes you back and you watch how that person, how that average Joe or Jane got themselves in such an awful, sticky situation. Right. And I love that kind of thing, you know. What makes people do the things that they do? Mm. And I could I could sit here and, and unpick, you know, any number of people and, and relationships that I have experienced, you know, and even on television and in films and stuff like that. And I am completely fascinated by that but to the point where maybe it's even unhealthy because yeah. you know if you psychoanalyze things you can psychoanalyze them straight to hell you know yeah, yeah, to the I point know. where it's just like i'm far too familiar with that process yeah, yeah. it almost loses all meaning do you know what i mean because <laughs> you've taken it too far right but then it's always like that there's that line in the arts and certainly in writing i think and like of like where obsession is really useful mm. and then it becomes unuseful practically in your everyday life but yeah and you kind of need it still 
skill to do the art yeah, stuff. So it's kind yeah. of a, a complicated balance. That's exactly. I feel like you've just summed up my entire life. <laughs> that that is yeah. That's exactly it. You know because I'll sit here obsessing about characters that I've created to the point where it's like these are really, really real people to me now. You know, yes. really, really real. To the point where sometimes they do things and I'm like, don't do that. Yeah. But now you've done it, so now I have to write it. Yeah. <laughs> and it can, you know, they've, they've developed lives of their own and I have to try and somehow control them or just write what they've done and deal with that. But also, I um, I moved in with a copper and I lived with her for about eight months because I decided I wanted to write a crime drama and I didn't know much about policing so I moved in with a copper I started taking and finished taking a, um, an online forensic science course through FutureLearn which was great, really really interesting so sometimes I do things like that and I'm like, that's a bit extreme maybe Yeah. maybe I should be doing things right. like that I used, to, I used to call myself a method writer yes, uh, and that's I think, what I think know, I might be yeah, I mean yeah. I, I sort of like, I'm a bit sort of sceptical of that sometimes now because I think sometimes that can give you an excuse to do the, the, the bad yeah. things in your life because you're doing it for your art so I don't, yeah. I, don't I, I, I resist that temptation slightly because it's like think, it, am I a method writer or am I just a madman yeah is it exactly yeah. is, is it <laughs> the method or is it just what I want to do yeah, yeah. So, but yeah I think that that's still it's a really valuable thing to, mm. like to to draw in experiences and get some actual because you know that's the problem isn't it there's so many people writing about experiences they have no understanding of yeah uh, and so it's it is good to get experience and that is the the, the drama that you know it itv studios commissioned in the end right. and one of the things that one of the guys there said to me is that he feels like i wrote real people rather than trying to write people that are already on screen that you don't really know right so maybe maybe some of it actually worked but um she she thought I was a really odd person. I am an odd person, probably, but she thought it was really weird that I was just interested in pretty much everything. And she'd come home after doing a late shift and it'd be like three in the morning and I'd be like sat in the living room on my on my MacBook and she'd be like, What are you doing? I'm like, Oh, um just researching uh Punjabis in the First World War. <laughs> Why? Oh I've just just for fun <laughs> it's really fucking weird <laughs> it's really weird sometimes you know that but yeah it's funny though I mean <laughs> one person's weirdness could be another person's talent you know I mean yeah. I think that's so to talent for writing myself like from because I don't believe in this kind of like I think very few brilliant writers just like come fully formed and like the sentences come out brilliantly but, yeah. but you can craft a sentence to become brilliant yeah. but you can't necessarily fake the interest fake mm. the passion fake the... so I think that sounds very talented to me and I've, I've really enjoyed talking to you today uh, mm. about what I consider to be your talents but you obviously don't quite so much <laughs> but, um, and it's been a pleasure getting better acquainted with you the last question that I ask everybody is do you have anything to plug? I suppose the podcast, sure. it's just called the Arts Emergency Podcast, really simple. You can get it on iTunes, you can get it on SoundCloud, we're really easy to find. So yeah, the latest episode, the lead interviews with Vicky Grout, who is a 20-year-old grime photographer. And I'd definitely recommend you listen to the episode before that as well, which was our most listened to episode ever, and features an incredible music producer called Wise, and some really great spoken word as well. Um, 
Yeah, so I think, I think that's all I have to plug. Yeah, it's a great show. I, I should have more. Well, <laughs> I mean, you know, some people don't plug anything, so you're, you're, you're at least you're at least doing better than them. People feel really weird about plugging things. Yeah, as well. I, I definitely feel weird about plugging things. But I mean, yeah, I really have enjoyed your show when I was listening to it today. And one of the things I did enjoy about it, and one of the reasons why listeners to my show should listen to it, is because, like you say, you didn't dumb it down. You took it absolutely seriously, and if people like conversations, there's a great conversation between you and the, that young photographer. Uh, it, seems, it seems wrong to say young photographer. It's only, yeah, it's only of so note because she's so young and so successful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, like that, that was a great conversation. And so, if you love conversations, listening to that show, and if you're interested in what people are doing, young people are doing, and listen to that show. The last thing I've asked my guests to do mm. is to say goodbye to the audience. <laughs> I'm not very good at goodbyes. I hate goodbyes. I really hate goodbyes, actually. That's, yeah, that's probably the thing I hate the most in Sorry. life. I'm, I'm one of those people that cries at the end of every film and cries at the end of every book simply because I'm sad that I won't get to hang out with the characters anymore. <laughs> so, yeah, I hate goodbyes. So, I think I'm just going to say, see you later instead. <laughs> well, bye, everyone. <laughs>Follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can like it on Facebook. www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk is one place you can find it. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted. On Monday, the 26th of September, I'm launching my new podcast, The Family Tree. When my dad found out about a mystery concerning a long-forgotten friend of his, I decided to investigate it in the only way that I know how, by having conversations. I can't make judgments or say anything without knowing all the facts and everything around it. It's sort of exploring each of the parameters of each potential story you're given and trying to work out how it can fit into each one of those. And I guess in a way it's all of them until, until it's none of them or one of them. Mark Sullivan, who disappeared 15 years ago, was found dead in January this year when a forest was cleared for a new building development. I see the world differently, having known Mark Sullivan. You're like the, the, the person who's the witness for all of them. Mm-hmm. You're, you, the only yeah. thing they'll know of their dad as, a, as an adult, you know, is going to be through, through your eyes. I mean, I guess that's quite a big responsibility. It's, it's difficult. The body they found still had the arm and teeth that he lost in a car accident and seems to have died eight years before he disappeared. I mean, who's the dad you'd spent so much time with if your dad is a body that can't be the dad that you grew up with? It doesn't make any sense. Like, even if there's some other reason for that other body, he'll still have died. But whether I would have felt different if Mark had disappeared before the accident compared to when he did disappear, I don't know. You keep talking about this mystery and I don't, I think, I don't know, I think someone's made a mistake somewhere. I know you don't mean it like this, but the question's almost offensive. In this podcast, I try to unpick this mystery through a series of conversations with Mark's family and friends. But I don't know, and there's only so many ways that someone can say I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's a mystery, it's just... Yeah, you said it's a mistake. There are things that I think I probably can't tell you about. But you also can't deny that it's it's evidence. Obviously, there's a difference between evidence and proof. Right. I mean, there are things you can't explain. If he turns up, he turns up, but you know, we're fine as we are. He's not going to. So, yeah, I'm not thinking about it because...
because he's not going to. If ghosts do exist, I think they wouldn't look how they looked when they when they died. They'd go back to how they looked in life. So, so Dad's ghost would have an arm. I wasn't sure what you would have perceived that as. It's interesting that now I'm sort of this far into this project, I've spoken to so many people and I still don't really have anything uh, to fill those holes with. Did Mark have a twin? Was there some sort of shady dealing on the part of the police? Was there was there a mistake in the identification? All of these questions are in the air, I think. I can't explain how that ghost then became a, a body that, that's been buried. That's a, a sort of a gap for me. I don't understand what he's talking about, how about how he doesn't want to talk about it. Right. I mean, he's got two dads, essentially. I've kind of decided to frame the show as if it's fiction. Isn't this just, like, upsetting everybody all over again? Like, it's, you know, it's not very nice. I think God does move in mysterious ways. There are things that are in some ways beyond our understanding, I think, and are nevertheless true. For more information about the show, go to thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk. It's too much for one person to puzzle out by himself. I don't have answers. I don't know.